You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's reading is from Isaiah 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Imagine being given the opportunity to go back in time and to speak uh, to the 20-year younger version of yourself. What would you say? What warnings would you give? Who or what would you caution them of? What would you tell them to look forward to? What experiences should they slow down and enjoy? Would you make fun of your wardrobe back then? Now imagine being able to sit down and listen to a future version of you. You, uh, but just 20 years older, with 20 years more experience. Imagine you had 30 minutes to sit down with that future version of you to pour a cup of coffee and to just talk. What questions would you ask? What things about your life or about even the world around you would you inquire of? What would you want to know? You can't help but acknowledge the idea of time travel is intriguing, is it not? To know or to experience a little bit of what is to come, to get a taste of future, Well, this morning, Isaiah 12 gives us the opportunity to do just that, to hear from a future version of ourselves. Uh, We have been working as a church, we've been studying together through the book of Isaiah. Uh, This week we come to Isaiah chapter 12, which is kind of the concluding chapter of the first section of Isaiah. Isaiah is delivering here his first uh, major statement, he's concluding his first major statement. And last week, what we saw when we looked at Isaiah chapter 11 was coming off of the heels of prophetic judgment upon the people of God, God brought hope. But he didn't just bring any hope, he brought the hope of a hero who would bring healing for his people. This hope was delivered in promise after promise after promise after promise of what things would be like in that day in the day where Christ returns and restores order to the universe. We saw absolute peace and absolute harmony, perfect justice, a time where the very core of creation was renewed and was restored. And then we see at the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, you will say in that day, you will say in that day, This is a voice out of our future. 
This is the church at its very best. Isaiah 12 is where we are going to look, is what we are going to look like. It's what we are going to sound like when we respond to God's all-powerful, all-sufficient grace upon the fulfillment of every promise he's ever made to us. Isaiah chapter 12 is our future worship. And here's why this matters. Most of you, if not all of you, live in Omaha, which means what's true of us is that you know how to go to church, but many of you don't know why you go to church. You know how to get up and you know how to go to church, but many of you don't know why you go to church, let alone know what it would look like for you to be a future perfected version of yourself. See, this gathering that we're doing here, this gathering is a worship gathering. We are gathering, to, gathering together for worship. Now, the truth is, is that all of life should be lived quorum Deo, right? Quorum Deo is the name of our church. It's a Latin phrase that means before the face of God. So all of life should be lived before the face of God in worship. But there is something unique. There is something special about our gathered time together. And wherever you're at this morning, I want you to know that God's invitation is the same. He invites you to worship him. And I think it needs to be said that worship is not just something that Christians do. We all worship. We all ascribe worth or value or significance to something or to someone. Each and every one of us holds something as ultimate in our life. And yet what God invites each of us to do this morning is to lay that thing down and to see him as more worthy, to see him as more significant, to see him as more valuable than all the other things that we tend to chase after in life. Isaiah 12 is the church at its best. It's our future worship. So here's what I want to do with our time together this morning. I want to look at Isaiah chapter 12. And I want to make some brief observations about what our future worship will look like. And then I want to answer one simple question. How do we take our future worship as revealed in Isaiah 12 and how do we go about pulling it into today? How do we take our future worship and pull it into today? So that's where we're going. Uh, if, you, if you haven't done so yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Isaiah Chapter 12, if you don't have a Bible with you, we will uh, definitely have the words up on the screen for you. It be an aid as we go together. Here's what we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 12. We're going to see that our future worship is personal, it is communal, and it is joyful. Or another way to say it more specifically, our future worship is a personal celebration of grace. It is a communal proclamation of grace. And it is a joyful experience of grace. So let's look at these. The first one. Our future worship is a personal celebration of grace. How do we know that to be true? Well, it's it's in the language of the text. In English, we use uh, the same word you, whether we're talking to you as an individual or whether we're talking to you communally. Okay? Isaiah, who is writing this to us, in his Hebrew, has two different words for you. He actually has a word that is singular, and he has a word that is communal. And what we see in verses 1 and 2 is he's using the singular you, which is why it is followed by the pronouns I, me, and my in verses 1 and 2. 
And then in verse 3, it turns and it becomes a communal you. It's speaking of us, we. So chapter 12, verse 1 starts by saying this. You, personally, will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. You see, our future worship will be very personal in nature in that every single individual will, of his own accord, say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. It is personal in nature. Each individual who's worshiping in this day will have a personal story of God's irresistible grace in their own life that drew them to himself. There will be nobody in this day who will ride the coattails of somebody else's worship into the new heavens and the new earth. You see, God is both a transcendent God and a personal God. And in his personal being, he relates to us personally. And each and every one of us in this day will have a personal celebration of his grace. This is why we as a church, as we're moving people through membership, as we're moving people through baptism candidacy, we have each and every person write their own personal story of conversion. We do that because we want every member and every person who is being baptized into the Christian faith to know what it is that they're personally celebrating. And for for no one, this personal celebration would have been no more true than for Isaiah himself. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 6? See, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 6, there's this this great picture, this great image that God gives Isaiah of himself. Isaiah is worshiping in the temple, and God opens up the ceiling of the temple and reveals himself, and coming down is, is God, but God is surrounded with these holy angelic beings who are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The old earth is full of his glory. And how does Isaiah respond to the holiness of God? He says, woe is me. For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. You see, Isaiah would have known intimately what it meant for him to be personally standing before God and to feel the difference, to feel God's holiness in his own inadequacies that should have provoked a sense of, of anger in the Lord. But what we see is that God sends through one of his angelic beings, a burning coal that's picked up with tongs. And that angelic being goes down and touches the lips of Isaiah. And in the touching of Isaiah's lips, God sends forth this message to him, saying, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. See, Isaiah was able to personally celebrate God's grace in his own life. And I want you to remember that the conversion of Isaiah was a mere foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, God's not able to be just and to be holy and to look over sin. He, he can't just escape the fact that he is angry and displeased with sin. But the beauty of the gospel is that God turned his anger on Jesus so that he could bring comfort to his people. That is the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the great exchange that we talk about in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says that God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He did not know sin. He was not sinful. He was a perfect being. But God credited all of the sins of us to Jesus, and he credited back to us the righteousness of God. So on the cross, in the gospel, God turns his anger to Jesus so that we as his people could be comforted. Isaiah goes on to say that our worship will sound like this personally. We will say, behold, 
which is simply saying, hey, pay attention, listen up, don't miss this. God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Is this not the great gospel that we professed out of the New City Catechism just moments ago? Do you remember that? Question 19 said this. The question was, is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? Is there a way of salvation? Whom should we trust in? And the answer was this. Yes, an affirming yes to satisfy his justice. Now catch this clause. God himself, out of mere mercy, reconciles us to himself and delivers us from sin and from the punishment for sin by a redeemer. God is my strength. God is my song. God is my salvation. Those are the words that echo out of our mouths in the picture that Isaiah gives us of our future worship. So how about you? Can you say these words? can Can you reckon with and celebrate God's grace personally in your life? And I want to encourage you, if, you, if your faith is in Christ alone, God has turned away his anger from you. God is deeply desiring to bring comfort to you, to bring hope to you. Listen, some of you uh, who are Christians, who are part of God's people, struggle with self-hate. You're so angry with yourselves for not living up to your own expectations. I want to encourage you, your expectations are low compared to God's. And yet God has turned away his anger to bring you comfort. You don't need to be angry with yourself. God intends to bring comfort to you. This is a personal celebration of grace. So we see that our future worship is personal, but it's also communal. Okay? It's communal, but specifically it's a communal proclamation of grace. Jump down to verse 4. Again, here we're making the turn from singular you to plural you. And it says in verse 4, And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all of the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. You see, what this shows us is that In our future worship, the church will gather together and it will give thanks to the Lord. There will be a deep sense of gratitude in that day, a day when redemption is complete and God has fully redeemed a place for his people. We will will spend endless time thanking God for what he has provided for us. Healing to the very core of creation, a new heavens and a new earth where Jesus reigns as king in absolute peace and order and harmony and justice. And there is a powerful element of communal worship happening in this day. But beyond gratitude, which is right, and gratitude drives worship, we also see that our future worship is a communal proclamation of grace. See, together the peoples of God are there encouraging one another. They're encouraging one another to make known, to proclaim the excellencies of God, to sing praises, to shout for joy in all of the earth. You see, the wonderful works of God have never been meant to be concealed or limited inside of an insular community. 
No. The wonderful works of God have always been and always will be into eternity made known amongst all the peoples, made known and shouted throughout all of the nations. See, here's what we learn as we look at our future worship together. We learn this. It's simple, right? A worshiping community is a missional community. And a missional community is a worshiping community. For, for many of us, we try to make this way too linear. Right? I, I come to faith and I come to know some things about God. And then at that time, I want that knowledge to then affect my heart to create worship. And then once it's created worship in me, then I got to go learn something about how to engage with non-Christians or people who don't know Jesus yet, get trained that way. And then eventually I'll start proclaiming the good news to people, right? It's this linear path. Isaiah 12 has no room for that, right? A missional community is a worshiping community. It by nature worships. And a worshiping community is a missional community. It, by its nature, proclaims the magnificencies, I'm not saying that right at all, right? (laughs) Whatever, of God to the nations, right? They can't help but do it. So as the church gathers, it proclaims to the surrounding world that Jesus is king, that Jesus who's king is the one who alone saves sins, and that his deeds are worth celebrating. Cormdale, how about us? Does this sound like us? Are we becoming this type of people? I want to share with you a quote from Tim Keller, who's a pastor up in New York City. He wrote of this in his book, Evangelistic Worship. He said, God wants the world to overhear us worshiping him. God directs his people not to simply worship, but to sing praises before the nations. We are not to simply communicate the gospel to them, but celebrate the gospel before them. See, for a community of believers who has experienced the transforming, renewing power of the gospel, proclaiming the good news, sharing the good news, singing the good news, celebrating the good news, shouting the good news, it's not something they feel like they have to do. It's something they can't help but do. It's the only right response to who God is and what God has done. So in that day, right, in that day where Jesus is reigning in a new heavens and a new earth, our proclamation of the gospel will not cease, but rather it will explode and continue forth in a joyful communal proclamation. That's what will happen. Which takes us to our final observation, that our worship is not only personal and communal, but it is also joyful. I want to draw your attention to verse 3, where almost every commentator, almost every biblical scholar will look at verse 3 and say, verse 3 is the key to unlocking, unlocking the entire chapter. That our personal worship is unlocked and empowered by what's said in verse 3. That our communal proclamation is unlocked and empowered by what is said in verse 3. What does verse 3 say? With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Ray Ortland, who's a pastor, theologian, wrote a great commentary on the book of Isaiah. It's out on our resource table. I can't encourage it enough. Listen to what he says as he talks about this experience of grace. The prospect of thirsty, weary, dirty people pulling up bucket after 
bucket of fresh, cool water in endless supply. Drinking deeply, pouring it over their heads, dunking their faces into it, splashing one another. That is a vision of God's gifts of salvation widely shared. Joyfully drawing water from the wells of salvation is the very life of God, openly accessible to us all, entering into our actual experience. John chapter 4, there's this story told of this woman from Samaria. She was uh, by far a very spiritually uh, dirty, weary, worn down woman who was actually going to pull water from the well in the middle of the day, which would have been completely countercultural at that day. You would have done it either early in the morning or late at night. But because of who she was and because of what she was known for, she went out in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, to draw water from the well. And it was there where she actually ran into Jesus and they, they entered into this dialogue. Jesus asked for a drink of water. and She said, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't even be asking me. And Jesus says, well, if you know who I was, you would be asking for something much greater. And he talked to her about this living water, a living water that Jesus offered that had the ability to satisfy eternal thirst, a living water that would become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Jesus engaged this woman in her past, all the things she had done, what she was known for. They talked and they dialogued about future worship. She said, my ancestors, some say they were going to worship on this mountain. Some others say we're going to worship on this mountain. Jesus brought insight into that question for her. And what you had at the end of the interaction was this woman running back to her town. And rather than hiding from people, she began gathering people and saying, hey, come and see. There's this person who's told me all that I have done. Could it possibly be that he is the Christ? You see what happened there? As she received living water, she was able to do two things simultaneously. She was able to be completely open and transparent about who she was and what she had done. And she was able to experience great, satisfying joy. That is the experience of God's grace. It's an experience of knowing who you are and not hiding who you are. Acknowledging what you have done and where you're headed and all the... All the evil and the wickedness that might be in your heart, but with great joy because God doesn't see that. God's turned his anger away. God's brought peace. He's brought grace to you. Revelation chapter 7, also talking about that day, speaks of Jesus this way. It says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, that's Christ, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, our future worship will be a joyful experience of grace where every thirst will be quenched, every need will be met, and every longing of the soul will be completely satisfied in Christ. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So that's Isaiah 12. That's a picture of us at our best, us on our best day, a vision of our future worship that is personal, that is communal, and that is joyful. But now let's quickly just turn the corner and let's ask the question, okay, if that is true, if that's God's promise to us, not only for our hope, but also for our strengthening and for our good, how do we go and take this future version of us, this future worship, and pull it into today? I think there's four simple things that we can do. Number one, Believe God's 
future promises. Believe God's future promises. See, the great chasm that exists between the future worship that is laid out in Isaiah 12 and our worship today is filled with unbelief. It is filled with unbelief. Why does our worship today continue to consistently lack this flavor? Why does our worship today not tend to exude this celebration of grace that we see in Isaiah 12? Why does our worship today lack a communal proclamation? Why does our worship today lack a joyful experience of grace by the Holy Spirit as we're gathered together? Well, it's unbelief. Like a bride walking down the aisle on her wedding day with the veil pulled over her face, we just don't see as clearly as we'd like. But here's what I can tell you about that day. In that day, the veil will be removed. And we will see ourselves perfectly and wholly redeemed. Everything being restored, everything being made right. And we will see everything crystal clear in the presence of God who has promised to dwell with his people. See, how do we pull future worship into today? We, we believe God's future promises. We fight against unbelief by grabbing a hold of the promises that God has given to us and claiming them as true for today. Future promises like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. For those of you who are always living on the fringe thinking you're about to make a wreck of your spirituality, how about the promise, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or my favorite promise, possibly, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's a promise phrased in a question, but it's a question from from greater to lesser. If God is going to give us and did freely give us his son, why wouldn't he give us all these other things? The future promises of God are a path on which we can walk to fuller, deeper, and a richer experience of worship together. And to the degree that you believe and rest in and trust the future promises of God, to that degree you will begin to get a taste of, of our future worship now. What else can we do? How about number two? Connect to community. Isn't it interesting how we tend to think when we take a good friend of ours and we take them into a community of other people, our heart tends to think, our mind tends to think we're about to get less of them. We're not going to get as much one-on-one time. Now, my wife, Tracy, she's, she's my best friend. I enjoy spending time alone with her. We have fun when we're alone together. But there's, there's something unique about being with her in community. There's something about sitting down to a good meal with good friends over a good glass of wine and just some unhurried conversation. You see, there's, there's some things in my wife's heart, there's some things in her personality that can only be drawn out by other people. See, no one person can draw everything out of another person's personality. So the truth is, is actually when I'm with my wife in community amongst friends, or when I'm with my wife at home with the kids, it's not that I'm actually getting less of her. I'm getting more of her. And if that's true for a finite being, how much more true would it be for an infinite being? 
You see, there's, there's no way that you will ever really know God as he is. There's no way you will ever get a full, robust, accurate picture of God apart from being in a worshiping community. You can't possibly see all of his excellencies. You can't possibly see all of his mighty deeds. You can't possibly see all the things that he's doing in isolation. This is why we are so adamant here at Coram Deo to wanting every person to get connected to a missional community. A body of believers who can do life together, who can study God's word together, who can pray together, who can celebrate God's grace in their life with one another, who can share burdens with one another, who can live on mission with one another. It's in the context of community that we're able to get to know who God really is and what are the things that he does. And that is the key to unlocking worship. So how can we pull our future worship into today? We can believe God's future promises. We can connect a community. Three, cultivate anticipation for worship. Cultivate anticipation for worship. We said at the outset, right, that we live in Omaha, so a lot of people know how to go to church. But knowing how to go to church is a lot different than actually anticipating meeting with God's people for the worship of God. Two different things. And if I can be honest with this, I think Cormdale, as a church, this is an area where we can grow, and I think an area where we desperately need to grow. And here's why I say that. There's some of you here right now who have no idea we did baby dedications at the beginning of the service. You don't know, because you weren't here. And I think the reason that you weren't here, um, not the reason, but one of the marks or one of the evidences of the fact that you weren't here during that time shows and reveals a a sense of we don't anticipate worshiping, at least not the way that we fully should or could desire to possibly do so. Now, I get things happen. I get things come up. But I do know this much. I, I know that if my kindergartner shows up five minutes late to school, I'm getting a call from the principal that day. Right? What if our habitual late arrivalness of our church was true of us Monday through Friday? I think for some of us, this has become a habitual problem that really is affecting our worship. And I don't say your worship, I say our worship. So how can we cultivate anticipation for worship? Get here on time, okay? Show up, be present, be ready to go. Which means if you have kids, you take them down to Cormdale Kids, you get them checked in and you're still here as the clock's ticking down and and it's preparing. Maybe giving you enough time to prepare your heart for worship here in this space, in this room. How about study? Right? We, we printed, I'm sorry, 450 of these Isaiah study and reflection guides. What if the way in which you began to prepare yourself for worship is you actually studied the passage we were about to preach or talk about during our gathered time together? For those of you who don't have one of these, we're going to have more of these printed as we kick off the second section of Isaiah in two weeks. But studying God's word, it's a way of cultivating anticipation. Maybe actually looking ahead at the New City Catechism, whether it's online or on a mobile phone or a mobile device, and saying, hey, what are we going to be professing? What can I learn about that? How can I prepare my heart to profess with boldness and confidence truths about who God is? What if we prayed? What if you set aside 10 minutes on Saturday night for the purpose of prayer? To pray for the preaching of the word, to pray for our worship together, to pray for all the people behind the scenes who are making Sundays happen. What if we spent 10 minutes just praying, asking the Holy Spirit of God to make himself known in this place? 
What if we spent 10 minutes praying for there to be renewal in our church, renewal in our city? What if we used prayer as a way to cultivate anticipation for worship? What if we, what if we came prepared, ready to respond? You know, the Bible teaches really clearly that when we hear the word of God proclaimed, one of two things happens. You either move closer to God and soften your heart, or you move further away from God and harden your heart. But the truth is, you don't stay the same. What if we came expecting to respond? How would that change our worship? So, We can believe God's promises. We can connect to community. We can begin to cultivate anticipation for worship. Fourth one, this one might blow your mind. It's super complex. Sing. (laughs) Sing. Right? Do you see in Isaiah 12, you see that God's not, he's not saying you must sing. He's saying you will sing. It's a non-negotiable. This will happen. Right? You will sing and you will shout for joy and you will make his name famous. It's going to happen. It's not just a commandment. It's something that you're bound to do. And I want to I specifically address the men here if I can. And I want to start by addressing the more mature men in the room who've been walking with Jesus for a long time because I think there's, a, there's an aspect of responsibility that you need to get that you might not understand. And it's this. There are a lot of young men in this church who did not grow up with a spiritual father, who did have no idea of what it means to be a man of God fully engaged, fully engaged in worship, and they are taking their cues from you. They are watching the way in which you engage in worship as a way of trying to see what does it look like for a godly man of God to engage worshipfully together. They're taking cues from you. I want you to feel the weight of that responsibility. But, but to the younger men who, who tend to want to believe the lie that men just don't sing, I want to encourage you, if you ever have the chance, to step into an Irish pub. <laughs> I, want, I, want you, I want to encourage you to go and put on channel 1245 or whatever ESPN soccer is, whatever, and go and watch the Brazilian national team play soccer and watch the crowd just erupt spontaneously in song. There's no need for people up in a sound booth to to set up a chant. It just happens. Talk with someone who spent some time in a Christian worship gathering in Southern Africa. Men sing. Men sing loudly. So I, I want to encourage you. Sing. Sing. There's something about men singing together that is powerful. I was never really involved in the the promise keepers phase. And as I look back on it now, I think there's some things that I might frame out a little differently. The gospel really is more about promises that God's made to us rather than promises we make to God. But you couldn't help but notice during that time that there was a powerful thing that happened as men got together and worshiped. It's powerfully transformative. And I think one of the signs for spiritual renewal in our church will be men singing. I think one of the powerful signs of gospel renewal in our city will be men freely, unashamedly getting caught up into the worship of God. When we sing loudly as a church, as we gather for worship, we get a unique opportunity to fast forward 
in time and to, to join with the angels and the saints who sing loudly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We get this wonderful opportunity to rehearse our future worship. So that's how I want to close this. I want to close this by creating an opportunity for us together as a church to rehearse our future worship. And we're going to do that this way. We're, going to, we're actually going to celebrate personally God's grace to us. We're going to do that through communion. If you're a Christian with us, if you're, if you're here and your trust, your faith is in Christ alone for salvation, I want you to come and I want you to partake and I want you to celebrate God's grace to you personally. And I want you to, to remember that as you receive the, the bread that's symbolic of Christ's broken body and as you dip it into the wine or the grape juice symbolic of Christ's blood that was shed on your behalf, that that is a crystal clear picture of how God turned his anger onto Jesus so that you might receive comfort and so that you might be freed to worship. So we're going to take communion together. We're personally going to celebrate God's grace. But not only that, we're going to corporately proclaim God's grace. And we're going to do that through song, through singing, through shouting, through clapping. Traditionally here at the church, we usually start the service with four songs and respond with two. This morning we've, we've flipped it, and we're actually going to do an extended time of response here at the end. Don't worry, I kept my sermon short. We're not running behind, okay? We're going to be fine. But I want to encourage you to stay engaged, to stay here, to consider it an opportunity to rehearse our future worship. We've let all the people know back in the kids that when the music starts, they're not supposed to be cleaning everything up and the kids aren't going to get stir crazy. We're going to be fine. So stay engaged and let's worship together. And as we do so, allow us to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit and allow us to joyfully experience God's grace together as his people. Let me pray for us. God, I want, to thank you for, um, I want to thank you for your word. And I want to thank you for the promises of your word. And I want to thank you for the immense promises of your word that we have seen the last two weeks in Isaiah chapter 11 and in Isaiah chapter 12. I want to thank you that even as we look at Isaiah 12, there's not necessarily, there's not a command in here. All you're doing is you're showing us what we will do in our future worship. And I want to thank you for that. God, I want to pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would uh, encourage us to be comforted and encourage us to comfort one another. I want to pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would empower and enliven our worship. I want to pray for the men of our church. God, I want to pray that you would mark the men of our church as worshipers. And it would be evident in how they prepare, how they lead their families into worship, and how they engage with you even as we're gathered together on Sunday morning. Not removed from what we see throughout the week, uh, but, but a full expression of what it looks like to live all of life before your face. God, thanks that we have the opportunity here to personally celebrate your grace. Thank you that we have an opportunity to communally proclaim your grace. And thank you that we have the opportunity to joyfully experience your grace. You've been so kind to us, and we're grateful for who you are and what you have done. We pray this all in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.